0: Okay, I'm going to take your Bibles, then, if you will, and turn to Genesis chapter eleven. Got a weird binding crease here on this page. Not it's not bound as good as it should be. Genesis chapter eleven. We're going to look at the first nine verses. Uh, For tonight. Uh, So here is God's word. Please give your attention as I read it. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Of all the earth. So here you have it. Um, This is the last, if you will, great story in the early chapters of Genesis uh, that tell of primeval history. Um, If you remember, you can kind of break Genesis down into two major parts. Uh, The first part is chapters 1 through 11, which bring us from the creation all the way up to the time of Abraham and and it covers a large span of time and it sets the stage for then what we'll see from chapter 12 on which is the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and the sons of Jacob which then lead to of course where the Israelites are now they're on the plains of Moab they're getting ready to cross into the promised land and Genesis is given to them, along with the other five books of the Pentateuch, uh, to explain to them their origins, who they are, why they're going to this land, uh, the people whom they are about to dispossess. All of these questions are answered in the book of Genesis. And what you see here in this Tower of Babel uh, story really is the explanation of to, as to why you have chapter 10. All right, chapter 10 um, shows us the uh, table of nations. It shows all of the nations of the earth that, that uh, descended from the sons of Noah. And we're told that they had their languages, their tribes, their nations, their lands. And the reason is because of what happens here at Babel. Right, the, we're going to see the Lord disperse uh, the people. So again, this is the final, cha- well, it's the next to last chapter In uh, the first part of Genesis, there's one more. These are the generations of, and it starts in chapter 11, verse 27. Um, But really, chapter 11, verse 27 will continue on into chapter 12, all the way up to like chapter 26 or 27, when you start hearing the story of Isaac. But this is the final part of this, where we saw the generations of the sons of Noah. So again, remember, these are the generations, this is the genealogy of, this is the book of the genealogy, however your Bible has it. It's translating a Hebrew phrase called Toledot, which is a marker in the book of Genesis that kind of nicely parses the book as you're going along from one section to the next. And in this section, if you remember last time from two weeks ago, you see multiplication and division. We saw the multiplication last time. The multiplication comes in the fact that uh, the sons of Noah uh, had sons, and then they had sons, and so on, and the earth was repopulated after the flood. Uh, Many nations, many tongues, many tribes come from the three sons of Noah. We are all descendants of one of the three sons of Noah, thus all descendants of Noah, thus all descendants of Adam, thus we're all related. So in a sense, you could say this is a and I, this is not my line, but I stole it from somebody. This is a family reunion. Not like the kind of family reunion that you have in Sutton where everyone's related to one another in one way, shape, or form, but a family reunion of far-distant cousins, right? We're talking not your second, you know, what was the, the way you described it? You're either, if you're a close family, you're invited to the wedding. If you're the next level down, you're invited to the funeral. And if you're the next level down, you're invited to the family reunion. Well... This would be like many levels removed from that, okay? Um, but we're, multiplication, uh, the three sons of Noah populate the, the new creation, if you will, that comes out of the flood. But now we're going to see division in this chapter, in this section, really. The division. Why do we have so many tribes, tongues, and nations? Why do we have different cultures and languages? You have it here in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. What's that? Yeah, well, yeah, the ultimate reason, of course, is disobedience. Um, and that's what you see here is we, we're looking at, this is, a, this is judgment. Now, I hesitate to use this word in connection with judgment, but it is a gracious judgment. If you can kind of see where I'm coming at with that, because the last time the earth was populated with uh, wickedness, what happened? God sent a big giant flood, right, and wiped out everybody except for Noah and his family. So this is a form of judgment, make no mistake, but it's a milder form of judgment. Again, we're now under this uh, covenant that God makes with Noah, with the earth, with his sons, with all the living creatures on the earth to not destroy it, to preserve it. Why is it being preserved? Because the, the seed of the woman has to come, right? We have to trace this Uh, This promise that was given to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3 is going to be traced along. That's what we're going to see next time, uh, Lord willing, um, as you know, we saw the table of nations last time. Next time we're gonna it's gonna zero in on the descendants of Shem, and we're gonna see that line now go from Shem all the way down to Terah and his sons, one of whom is Abram. And he will kind of take the narrative over from that point. But again, here we're going to see the confusion of languages uh, as Babel sets the stage uh, for eventually what's going to be true unity in Christ. I'm going to kind of give a a little bit of the ending here, uh, so don't leave after I give you the ending here. But um, what you're going to see here in judgment as the world is dispersed and scattered and confused and separated is brought back together again in Christ, right? The, the kingdom of God is made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we're all going to sing praises to God as we, as you see in Revelation 5, as the 24 elders praise the Lamb, as, as the cherubim praise the Lamb, as everyone on the whole earth will praise the Lamb one way or the other, whether uh, willingly or unwillingly. But... Uh, Again, the theme for tonight is the confusion of languages at Babel, or Babel, sets the stage for the unity in Christ, for true unity in Christ. And uh, I came up with this, I'm probably not the first person to come up with this title, but um, I kind of rolled off the tongue, Babel at Babel. (laughs) Babel at Babel, that's that's what we're calling uh, this passage here. Um, I've got uh, three main points. Uh, The first one. Now, just a note, if you remember, maybe you don't, and if you don't, that's okay. But last time, I talked about a structure that is used here. Um, Hebrew uses several um, literary uh, tools to highlight things, to uh, structure narratives and poetry. Um, You see this a lot, like, in the Proverbs. You'll see um, antithesis. You'll see, you know the wise man does this, the fool does that. And, you know, so you've got these parallels, you know, the wise and the fool. Or sometimes the parallel will be positive. The wise man does this. And then the next line will say something that's synonymous to what you saw before. These are structures. These are, these are ways of that Hebrew, uh, that the writers of Scripture use that God has inspired into the Scriptures to kind of bring structure to this. And there's a structure in this passage that if... Uh, if you remember, I'll give you a cookie from from two weeks ago. If you were here two weeks ago, it's, it is a stale cookie. It is a cookie from two weeks ago. Uh, all right, it's, it's called a chiasm, a chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M. It sounds like something you're doing if something bad is happening to you. Oh, no, he's chiasming. No, it, it's, 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 uh it's, It's a structure that is named after the Greek letter key, C-H-I, which is really what looks like for us an X, okay? So the way the structure is, it starts off, you know, uh, there's parallels, and it comes in and meets in the middle, and then it comes back out. So what is at the end will parallel what's at the top, and then what's in the middle is really kind of what the author is trying to draw your focus to. So... Just to show you some of the hints of this, if you look at the first four verses, you'll see that the people um, had one language, right? One tongue, and they gathered together because they didn't want to be scattered, right? Then if you look at the last two verses, 8 and 9, they were scattered, uh, they had many languages, and they dispersed from the area they were at. So one language... They gathered together. They were feared of being scattered, and then at the end, they were scattered. They had many languages, and they were spread out over all the earth. So that's why the the way the my points are: you have one people, one tongue. The last point is many people, many tongues, um, and then in the middle is God speaking. Verses five through seven is God speaking, and you see He you. I believe this is intertrinitarian language. Some may say it's God speaking with the heavenly court. I think, you know, if you have New King James in verse 7, the word us is capitalized. Now, again, this is a license that the translators use, but the translators of the New King James Version capitalize pronouns that refer to deity. So the translators of the New King James feel that the us is a reference to the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us go down. If you remember from chapter 1, uh, when God is about to make man, he says, let us make man. Who, who are the us? Well, you know, from a Christian perspective, looking back at the Old Testament with New Testament eyes, you see that the us has to refer to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Same thing in Isaiah 6. When uh, God commissions Isaiah to go out and prophesy, he says, Who shall go for us? Whom shall we send? Um, I'd have to look. Um, The us's would be pronoun. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at here particularly, too, in verses 5 through 7, you see the word Lord. That's actually the covenant name. That's Yahweh. So, Yeah. Usually that's Adonai, yeah. And then if you just see the word God, that's usually the word Elohim, which is, again, as, as Byron was saying, that's a, it's in the plural form, but it's used to refer to the singular God who is one God, right? Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4. So that's the structure. So we're going to look first at verses 1 through 4, one people, one tongue. Um. So as we were saying earlier, uh, as we saw in chapter 10, the table of nations, uh, we noted that the post-Diluvian, that's just a fancy way of saying the after the flood, <laughs> the post-Diluvian people were separated according to their families, languages, lands, and nations. If you want to just turn back to chapter 10, if you look at verse 5, you'll see this, this is repeated three times, maybe not in exactly the same order but the same four words are there. So in chapter 10, verse 5, uh, from these, that is the sons of Japheth, from these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Then drop down to verse, verse 20. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands and in their nations. And then finally, bless you, finally in verse 31, the sons of Shem, these were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. So four time, or three times those four words are repeated. Families or clans, uh, languages, their tongues, their, their, their words, uh, their lands, their, their regions, and their nations. Uh, that's why we call this the table of nations. We also noted, if you look at chapter 10, verse 25, uh, one of the sons of Shem, one of the descendants of Shem, is a man named Peleg, or Peleg. Um, And we're told that his name, uh, you might have a footnote there in verse 25, that means division. Uh, For in his days, the earth was divided. So you can make a very strong argument, and I would make that argument, that Uh, The incident of the Tower of Babel occurred in the days of Peleg, or Peleg, um, because in his days, during his time, the earth, or the world, or the the nations were divided, uh, and that would refer to the uh, Babel incident. Now, the Tower of Babel, as we said, tells the story of how this division occurred. How did we get all of these nations and lands and languages and, and, and um, families? How did we get all this? The Tower of Babel explains this. And the, and the passage begins in verse 1 by telling us here, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Um, you might have a footnote there This says one lip. Uh, the word one speech is just, uh, it's the word in Hebrew, devar, it means speech or word. Uh, the word language is shafa, it, it means lip or language so it's again that's hebrew parallelism okay it's just saying the same thing using two different words they spoke the same language okay what language is that well if you're a king james only you might say that's english but no i'm kidding but um, probably some form of semitic language probably hebrew um, the Okay, And and, and so they, they all had one tongue. And that would make sense, right? God spoke the world into existence. He created Adam as a rational person who could commune and have relationship with him. And they spoke. In fact, Adam named all the animals. And whatever he named them, that's what they were called. And the people would have communicated. They had one language, one speech. We see the people here journeying. And settling in the land of Shinar, which um, we're going to get to this in a moment. But Shinar is, of course, the, you know, we're going to make a reference to Nimrod in a little bit. But it's one of the lands that Nimrod, find, uh, he, he, he establishes a kingdom there, right? If you remember from last time, Nimrod was this mighty warrior, this, this uh, conqueror who goes out and conquers. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and more than likely he was hunting men. And conquering lands and establishing empires, and, and Shinar is one of those empires that he that he founds. Now, uh, if you're if you have a study Bible like I have here, you might have a map on the page. Uh, Shinar would be in that area that is now modern day southeast Iraq, uh, kind of where the the Tigris and the Euphrates River meet. In that kind of area, um, it would have been a very fertile uh, land, a very uh, a, a very good land to um, to establish a settlement now there 's a little bit of um, some translational issues, whether it says they now the new King James says they journeyed from the east um, it 's unclear whether it 's they journeyed from the east or they journeyed eastward because there are some there are some translations, some of them one of them very good, the New American Standard, uh, New International, the New Living Translation, the New English Translation, or the Net Bible, they all say, in a sense, journeyed eastward. Okay, That would seem to make more sense, because if if we believe that um, the ark would have landed somewhere in the mountains of Ararat, that would be somewhere up in the area of Turkey, Uh, if they're going to go to Shinar, well, they have to go eastward. So it'd probably make more sense to say that they instead of saying they journeyed from the East, like they came from you know India <laughs> or from Mongolia, that they probably were started somewhere in that Middle East area and went eastward to Shinar uh, there's some now there's some theological significance too it 's not just that they journeyed eastward, but if you remember from the uh, the fall, the, the, uh, the narrative of the fall in Genesis 3. Uh, in which direction were Adam and Eve cast out of the garden? Eastward, right? Where did Cain settle after he was expelled from the family area for his sin? East in the land of Nod, right? Going eastward is, in a sense, moving away from God, okay? Because the way the temple was structured... The way the garden, I believe, was structured, the entrance would have been east-facing. So, if you're going to approach God, you have to go, you have to come from the east to go into it. If you're moving eastward away from it, you are, in a sense, moving away from God. So, uh, you could see these people as they gather together, in a sense. Theologically speaking, they are moving away from God. They are, they are, and, and we're going to see why because they're going to start to exalt themselves. They're going to build a tower whose heights will reach the heavens, and they're going to, in a sense, challenge um, uh, the rule of God. But they journey, they settle in the land of Shinar, and then they begin to dwell. That that. Word kind of means you're, you're setting up your tent. You are you are establishing a home here. You are sitting. You are remaining in a place. They dwell and they sit in the land of Shinar. Uh, in fact, if you look at chapter ten, verse ten, uh, again, like I said, we'll talk about Nimrod in a moment. But in chapter ten, verse ten, it says, in the beginning of his kingdom, that was Nimrod, was Babel, Eric Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. So uh, I think you can make a strong argument, though there's, you, know, you have to make this inference from the scriptures, that Babel was established by Nimrod himself, that he was the one who gathered everyone together and said, let us build this great city. So they gather together. They're of one language. They gather here in the plains of Shinar. And what do they do? While well, they begin to make brick and mortar. See that in uh, verse 3. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. Let us bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They want to consolidate themselves. They want. They are, in a sense, afraid of being scattered because then their strength is no longer concentrated. So they want to dwell. They want to make a city. They want to build an empire. They want to build a tower that, in a sense, will ascend into the heavens itself. Now, they mean into the clouds, right? You know, high, right? I mean, we're not talking it's literally they're going to be at, you know, at the door of the literal heaven, but they want to make a name for themselves. That's what they do. They build a city and a tower. More than likely, this would be like a ziggurat, if you know what a ziggurat is. Uh, It's like a pyramid, but it's more like layers, you know, so you've got, you know, these levels, and then there would have been a stairway that kind of goes around it, and there was, you can find ziggurats uh, all over all over the world, yeah, for sure. All over in this area, you, you see them in South America, you see them in Mexico, the Incans, the Mayans. They built ziggurats. Uh, ziggurats are all over the world. It's, a, it's a, just a common way to, to build uh, towers and things. Yeah, pyramid is like, you know, it's, it's more of like a smooth <laughs> That would probably be another reason why they were scared of being scattered. Yeah. Um, in fact, in one of the commentaries I read, said that uh, it was believed that the ancient Greek uh, historian Herodotus said he saw the remains of what would have been the Tower of Babel. Now it wasn't a tower anymore; it was just the foundation of it, uh, because Herodotus lived. I'm. I i do not know. I don't know his dates. Probably three or four hundred B.C. Uh, This would have been built some, you know, probably a thousand or so years before that, but um, he believes he said that he saw the remains of the tower there. Now, one thing I think we can see from this is the creativeness of mankind, okay? We often tend to think, you know, us in the 21st century, you know, we're so great because we can make little phones that can do all kinds of things, and we have all this technology and such. The people back then were immensely creative. They were immensely, uh, uh, they had immense ingenuity. They had, uh, you know, um, they're showing here the fact that they are created in the image of God. They're showing here that they have, that in, in a sense, that same creative ability. As God is a creator and we are made in his image, we create things. Now, the problem is because of the fall, what we create tends to be uh, in sin, <laughs> tends to be an idol, tends to be uh, something that is opposed to God. But you see great things here. And, and we know this just from, you know, if you know even a cursory glance at history, Mankind is capable of great things. And I don't mean great always means good. Just great things, both good and bad, right? You know, it's like, you, know, it's like, you, know, you always hear the story, it's like, you know, the Chinese invented fire, you know, uh, gunpowder, and, and the Europeans found a way to make explosives out of it. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, all these things, we are so good at creating many things, good and bad. Now, their great ingenuity here and inventiveness is further aided by the fact that they all spoke one language. They all had one culture and they were able to gather the collective, um, creative power of many people to do this. So man is capable of great things, but what we see here is what do they want to do is they want to build a tower to reach the heavens, we'll look at that in a moment. And they want to make a name for themselves. Okay? They do not want to glorify God in what they do. They want to glorify and exalt themselves. This is Romans 1, before Romans 1 was written, right? Uh, refusing to honor and worship God, what do they do? They worship and honor the creature rather than the creator. And they do all kinds of things that um, pervert the fact that we were made in God's image. Now, cities, of course. Uh, nothing inherently evil about a city. It's just a large gathering of people, right? Uh, you, you see this in, in chapter 4, that, that cities were made, right? Uh, one of the sons of Cain goes out and he makes a city, right? And, he, of course, he calls it after the name of his son and so on and so forth. You know, cities are just places, large places with large gatherings of people. But this idea of to make a name for themselves is to build a reputation, They wanted a name for themselves apart from God. They did not want to honor God in what they did. They did not want to honor God in the use of their uh, abilities and in the use of their gifts and talents. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And they wanted to build this tower to reach the heavens. This is, in a sense, to rival God himself. They wanted to, in a sense, show that we can ascend, we can... We can come from the earth and we can ascend back to where the gods are. But more importantly, what did God tell Noah when he got off the ark? Fill the whole earth. earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Well, they've done that. Are they filling the whole earth? Not yet. (laughs) They're filling one spot on the earth, right? Instead of uh, dispersing and filling the whole earth with the image of God, they are Consolidating their power. Instead of having God exalt them, they want to exalt themselves. Instead of worshiping and submitting to God, they, in a sense, want to storm the gates of heaven. Ever since the fall, it has been a battle between autonomy versus theonomy. Now, I'm using the word theonomy very specifically here. Uh, If you know anything about the word theonomy that has that carries a lot of baggage, but I'm using it in the very pure sense of the word. It's either self-rule or God's rule, right? That's the whole point. That's That was what caused the fall in the first place. God's law or self-law. That's, yeah, yeah, either way. Um, if you remember the incident uh, in in the garden right god gave adam a commandment he said do this do not eat from this tree and the day you eat of it you will surely die and then satan comes in and tempts god or tempts adam and says has god said you will not surely die and then all of a sudden he says and, and he's he's telling you this because he he knows that if you eat of this fruit you will be like him and that plants the seeds of well, God is holding something back from us. God is is not giving us, he's not made us all that we can be. If we eat this fruit, we're going to be even more like God. Of course, the irony was they were already created in the image of God to begin with. In fact, after the fall, they are now less, in a sense, in the image of God because that image is now shattered. But this idea of autonomy versus theonomy, self-rule versus God's rule. This episode here in, in Babel encapsulates the entire human endeavor, the entire human experiment, uh, in the words of uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun, right? That phrase under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes talks about life in this world, under the sun and apart from God. And again, this was Nimrod, right? Nimrod who established the kingdom of Babel. And what did his name mean? It means to rebel. And what are we doing here? They are rebelling. They were told to fill the earth and to spread out, and they refused to do that. They refused to follow God. In fact, they want to, in a sense, be gods themselves. So now we look at uh, the Lord comes down in verses 5 through 7. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the rebellion of man, as it has in the past and will continue to do, uh, catches the attention of God. God. If you remember back in chapter six, when wickedness began to fill the earth, uh, you see in chapter six, verse five. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every man, sorry, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord saw, okay. Now, these are remember that big fancy word we used it in the past, anthropomorphisms, okay? It, it's, a, it's a way of describing God in man-like terms. God doesn't have eyes, God, you know, but he does see. God is um, he's, he's omnip- he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he is everywhere. But what we're seeing here is the author, Moses, is drawing attention to the fact that this Rebellion caught the attention of the Lord. It caught the attention of the Lord. He saw what was going on here. And here we'll see that the Lord comes down. We will see this later uh, in Genesis in chapter 18 uh, when the, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah catches his attention. And it says that the Lord goes down. He tells Abram, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it. This is God taking notice of what the sons of men are doing. It's, again, this is language of accommodation. So we don't think that, that it wasn't like God was paying attention somewhere else, counting the hairs on somebody's head, and then all of a sudden he turned and looked, oh my goodness, they built the tower, we've got to do something about this, or, or, or anything like that, No. God saw what they were trying to do. I want to look at a couple of verses uh, to highlight this. Uh, Psalm 11, Psalm 11 in verse 4. I may just, it's a short psalm. I may just read the whole psalm because it's a good psalm. Psalm 11, verse 1. Uh, This is a psalm of David. And he says here, In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain. For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. So, you know, David is writing and talking about how the wicked are saying to him you need to flee you need to run because the wicked are coming after you but he begins the psalm by saying in the lord i put my trust why should i fear what men are going to do to me uh verse three if the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do well look at verse four the lord is in his holy temple The Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, his countenance beholds the upright. But verse 4 was the one I really wanted to focus on. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his throne. His eyes see everything. Also, look over at Psalm 33. Psalm 33. This is a psalm about uh, the sovereignty of God over all creation. In Psalm 33, verses 13 and 14. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. All right, This is just a nice, you know, giving you the expression, the idea that, that God sees everything. He sees everything. And he saw what was going here at Babel. He doesn't need to, you know, it's not like he has to turn and look and see. He sees everything. Uh, one more passage, please. Uh, the book of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 23, Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24 here. The Lord says, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Yeah, I think it's Psalm 139, where the psalmist says, Where can I go that you cannot find me? If I go to the tops of the mountains, you are there. If I go in the depths of Sheol, you are there. If I go across the sea, you are there. You are everywhere. There is nowhere I can go. You knew me from my mother's womb. There is nowhere I can go that you do not see me. So the Lord comes down and he sees what the sons of men are doing. And he notes that the people are unified. You can go back to Genesis 11. Genesis 11. Verse 6. Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they propose to do. Uh, Now nothing will be withheld from them. They are unified. They are of one mind. Why? Because they all speak the same language. They all have the same culture. They are all, in a sense, together on this project, if you will. They are together. They are unified. And and, and the sense of this verse here in verse 6 is if this is what they do as unified people, then there's nothing that they can't accomplish, but it's more pointing toward their wickedness, right? In other words, this is, in a sense, kind of a repeat of what's going to happen in Genesis 6 or what happened in Genesis 6. They are of one. They are one purpose, and they will continue to um, grow in wickedness. Now, when God says here, you know, now nothing that they propose to do will be held with them, from them, he's not worried, okay? We should not understand this as though God is somehow worried. Oh, no, they're building a tower. We better put guards on the gates. We better watch out. They're going to come up and storm the palace of heaven itself. No. No, this is not to be understood as, as if God is worried. It's just the same wickedness that led to the flood is growing again. Um, I'm going to probably reference this a couple times, but uh, I love how Psalm 2 puts it. (laughs) Yeah. In Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4, right, the people of Babel are building a tower whose heights will reach heaven, so they say. Here in Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So the the people are unified. They're of one cord. They are together. And they're saying, let us cast off the bonds of this God whom we do not want to worship. Is God worried? Is God fretting? What does verse 4 say? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He shall hold them in derision. God is not worried. God is not afraid. In fact, this, this idea of God coming down is like, think of it this way. The people want to build a tower whose heights will reach the heavens. And God has to come down from His heights and stoop to see what they're doing. All right, this is sort of like a man, a human being with an ant. You know, if you see the ants scurrying around and they're building little anthills, what do you have to do? You got to like bend down. Oh, I see they're building a little anthill down there. Maybe I'll go check out what they're doing. Are you worried that the ants are building an anthill? No. (laughs) No, and now multiply that by like a billion. And that's how worried, not worried, God is about what the sons of men are doing. Now, what we see, of course, in this is that if man could, he would seek to overthrow God. If he had the ability to overthrow God, that's exactly what he would do. If he could storm the gates of heaven and kick God off his throne, that's exactly what fallen man would do. He would overthrow God. This is the heart of pride, this is the heart of rebellion. This is what drove Satan to rebel, and that's how he tempted man. Again, remember in Genesis 3, he says, you will be like God's if you eat this fruit. You will not die doubting God's word, denying God's word, and then saying, you will be like him, for you will know good and evil like God does, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, There's a passage in Isaiah 14. which, interestingly enough, is a lamentation against the king of Babylon. Uh, Because we're looking at Babel, Babel is the the sort of the progenitor of the Babylonian kingdom. But Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, this is speaking about the king of Babylon, but many scholars, and I agree, believe that this is... Not just against the king of Babylon, but also against the power behind the king of Babylon, which would be Lucifer himself, Satan himself. We saw this in Daniel, that, that there are spiritual forces at work behind the scenes that we do not see in the workings of human governments. If you remember from Daniel 8, um, or it, maybe it was Daniel 9, um, Daniel's praying. And then the angel comes, but he comes like three weeks late. And he says, I would have been here earlier, but the prince of Persia hindered me. Now you're like, "Oh, well, how can a human prince hinder an angel? Well, it wasn't a human prince, right? It was the, the demonic power behind the Persian empire. There was some spiritual warfare going on that Daniel and no one on earth was privy to. Yet that's going on. And, and we see that here in a sense Uh, that the power behind, uh, the demonic forces behind the kingdom of Babylon is none other than Satan himself. And and look at chapter 14, verse 12. Uh, Here the prophet says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Do you remember what does Jesus say when the demons are being cast out? He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky right Satan is the the act of Jesus coming into the world and and the act of him and his disciples casting out demons is in a sense uh, the kingdom of God breaking back in and taking back uh, territory that that Satan and his uh, demons have usurped Uh, and he says as the demons are being cast out he gets a glimpse and reveals this of the spiritual warfare is going on Satan himself was cast out of heaven you guys are out there performing your, uh, your casting out of demons. It's mirroring the words here that we see in Isaiah fourteen twelve. How you have fallen from heaven, a Lucifer son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit down on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Five times, Satan says, I will, I will, I will, I will, and I will. I will ascend into heaven. What are the people of Babel trying to do? They're trying to build a tower that would ascend into the heavens. I will sit on his throne. This is what Satan wanted to do. He wanted to take the place of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will exalt my throne above the stars. Then verse 15, the prophet says, you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. That's what happens when you try to ascend and and usurp the kingdom of God. You get cast out and you get cast down to the lowest parts of the pit. So what does God do? You can go back to Genesis 11. Verse 7, come, let us, we talked about the us there, Let us go down. Again, this idea they have to come down just to see what the sons of men are doing and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So God comes down to confuse. The Hebrew word there is balal, to mix, to mingle, to uh, confound their language. And this confusion of the language then is as I said, it's a manifestation of judgment. It is a manifestation of judgment. But as I said earlier, it's also kind of a, a quote-unquote gracious form of judgment in the sense that God is not wiping them out. He is, he is basically putting an end to their project. He puts an end to their project by confusing uh, the languages here. Now, what we see in this is what you've seen throughout the entire history of humankind, right, is this, this notion of one world government, world unity, one world religion, all of these things. They, they find their, in a sense, their, their, their origin here at Babel, right? A, you know, you see it in the empires of, of history. What did they want to do? They didn't just want to take over a small region. They want to take over, from what their perspective was, the known world, right? All of these empires that were quote, unquote, world empires stretched across, at least what was up to that point in time, the known world from their perspective. Rome was a huge empire. Persia was a huge empire. Babylon was a huge empire. Uh, the empire of the Mongolians was a vast empire. They wanted to conquer and bring everything under one rule. That's as old as Babel. One world government, one world religion. We see it today in the United Nations, right? So that we can make sure nothing like World War II will ever happen again. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) I hear the chuckles, right? How much world peace has ensued after the establishment of the United Nations? Zero, right? (laughs) Zero world peace. Has there been a day of peace on this planet anywhere since the, the United Nations has been established? No, it's the same thing with other globalist agendas and everything. They're all doomed to fail. They're all doomed to fail primarily because the languages are, have been confused, and it's hard to bring different cultures together with different languages, but also because it's just a rebellion that God is going to eventually quash anyway. That's, you know, we saw this prophesied in the book of Revelation, right? Right? All the kings of the nations gather together uh, at at the foot of Mount Zion, at at Jerusalem to conquer the kingdom of God. And what happens? God comes down, says a word, and they all turn into smoke or whatever the case may be. They are are felled with a word. Felled with a word. All right, finally, let's look at the last point here, verses 8 and 9. So we started with one people, one tongue. God comes down, and now we see many people many tongues. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So whereas the whole earth gathered in the plains of Shinar to build a city, God now scatters them Throughout over the whole face of the earth. And that's, again, you see that kind of spelled out in Genesis 10. The nations go forth and they, they go north and east and, or, yeah, east and south and west, and, and they go over the whole area in that, in that region. Where the whole earth spoke one language, now God confuses the languages. What was happening in, ch- in verses 2 through 4 is unraveled in verses 8 and In 9, in fear of being scattered and in rebellion to God's command to fill the earth, the children of men gathered, but God exercises sovereign control over the affairs of men and nations. We see that in the book of Daniel as well, right? God causes nations to rise, He causes nations to fall. Um, God is in control of all things. God knows who's going to be the president in 2024. So, you know, all of these things. All of these things are in the sovereign control of God. What was described in the Table of Nations in Genesis 10 is explained here in verses 1 through 9. The scattering of men according to their families, nations, lands, and languages was a judgment of their rebellion at Babel because they refused to obey the command of the Lord to fill the earth and multiply. It's interesting. Um, you know, in Hebrew, the, the word Babel and the word confused are related. Uh, confused, where they confuse the languages, Balal, and the word for Babel is Babel. Well, it's Babel, right? Okay. Now, in, in, the, uh, in, in the Babylonian language, the word Babel actually means the gate of the gods, right? And that's what Babel was supposed to be, right? It was a gateway to where the gods were, right? And when God turns that name into confusion, right? The gate of the gods is now confusion, uh, because there the Lord confused the languages. Now, the word Babel, that's the, that's the Hebrew word in the Old Testament that also refers to the nation of Babylon. It, that word Babel is in the Old Testament 262 times, 257 of those times, so almost all of them. Um, it it's refers to the nation of Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon. And if you remember from our series through Revelation and Daniel, Babylon is symbolic of everything that is anti-God, everything that is anti uh, the people of God. It, it stands against all that God and his people stand for. Uh, we saw in Revelation 17 and 18 the fall of Babylon, right? The, the, the Of course, you first see the mystery Babylon is the, the great prostitute on the beast. And then in chapter 18, you see the fall of Babylon and how the people lament the fall of Babylon because everything has been ruined. Their commerce, their way of life has been destroyed, and the people lament. All of that begins here at Babel. This is the origin, if you will, of Everything that will eventually come to be known as anti-God, anti-church, anti-people of God, anti-Christ. It all begins here. Now, as I said, the events of this passage occur before what we saw in chapter 10. It's the reason why everyone was scattered according to their tribes, families, nations, and and, uh, lands. Uh, and, And they are... The reason, these events, they are the reason that the descendants of Noah were spread across the earth. And again, man ever since the fall has always wanted to usurp God and dethrone him. And again, Babylon is representative of this. I think, again, this is, I keep bringing back Daniel, but it's so poignant how all of the images you see in Daniel of these great world nations They all begin with Babylon, right? If you remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, the great empire builder there, he gets a vision of this great statue, and Daniel tells him, when he interprets the dream, he tells him, you, O king, are the head of gold. You are, in a sense, the source of all this. And it's going to continue through the eons of history from this point forward until that stone that is cut without hands, which represents... The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, he's going to come and he's going to destroy the kingdoms of men to the point where it says that they turn into dust and the wind blows it away. In other words, there will be no memory of any of this once the kingdom of the Son of Man is established. But man has always wanted to usurp God and dethrone him. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 says, you know, he's looking over his kingdom. He says, is this not great Babylon that I have built with my hands, right? Then God has to come down (laughs) and causes uh, Nebuchadnezzar to go into a fit of madness for a long period of time. Now, the story, as I said, of Babel is the final event recorded in this section of primeval history, uh, which is meant to give a history of the world to the Israelites as they cross into Canaan. Because this story will now lead, as I said, you're going to get the generations of Shem, his genealogy, and it's going to lead into the story of Abraham. Now, whereas the, the nations were cursed, if you will, at Babel and scattered abroad, what is the first promise that God gives Abraham in Abram in Genesis 12, verse 3? He says, through you, all the families, right? What were they doing? They were scattered into their families, to their nations, to their languages and their lands, All of the families of the earth will be blessed through you, right? So the promise, what was done at Babel, you get a hint as to how it's going to turn out as God gives this promise to Abraham. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then that story of Abraham and his descendants is going to take us through the rest of the book of Genesis, but also the story of Babel shows us the futility of man's attempts to reach God. Not just in the tower that's going to reach the heavens. Every single one of our attempts to reach God. Every single one of our attempts to exalt ourselves. Every, even our own attempts at self-righteousness to earn our way into heaven. All of these are doomed to fail. Because you are doing this under the sun, apart from God. We are all doomed to failure and judgment. As Jesus says to his disciples when they ask him, who then shall be saved? Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. With man, it is impossible to enter into heaven. You cannot enter into heaven through building towers. You cannot enter into heaven through being good enough. The only way you can enter into heaven is if God does the work, if he brings you into his kingdom. And I find it interesting that what was scattered and confused at Babel is, in a sense, undone in the, on the day of Pentecost. If you will, please turn to Acts chapter 2. Day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, 7 weeks, 49 days plus a day. Um, In Acts chapter 2, now at this point, Jesus had already been resurrected. He's already spent 40 days um, there, and he's instructed the disciples, and then he ascends, right? You see that in Acts chapter 1. And as he's ascending, or about to ascend, the disciples are like, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And he's like, no, just wait 10 days, (laughs) right? Wait 10 days, and you will receive power. And then you will be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Where were the nations scattered? Well, they were scattered across the ends of the earth. What's Christ going to do? He's going to give his church power. And that power is through the Holy Spirit. And they will go and they will be witnesses of this kingdom of Christ to the ends of the earth. So you read here. Now you see the beginning of this. So just as Babel is the beginning of... uh, The anti God forces. Here you see, in a sense, the beginning of this new kingdom in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they, the disciples, were all with one accord in one place. Kind of sounds like Babel. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, and a rushing, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues. "...as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were there dwelling in Jerusalem, and and there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speaking in his own language." Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. Just think of that table of nations again in Genesis 10. Uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. What was confused at Babel, here by the power of the Holy Spirit, is in a sense undone. The kingdom of God goes forth now as as the church goes forth to be witnesses. and, And it's attested to by this great miracle in which the confusion of tongues is undone. And the people hear. They are speaking. And the people hear in their own tongue the wonderful works of God. That's what they hear. And many, as you know, as, the, as Peter then preaches a sermon, and it's at the end we've, we're told that 3,000 souls came uh, to the Lord. And then as they continue to go out through the book of Acts, uh, more and more, the church continues to grow and grow. Again, a group of people that surpasses languages and lands and families and, and, and nations because they are all now members and citizens of this great kingdom of God.